Welcome to the Synaxis Podcast. A Synaxis is a liturgical gathering. It can also refer to an unveiling event. The Synaxis Podcast is a weekly gathering hosted by yours truly, Scott Jones, for the purpose of finding the life-giving healing word of the gospel and the words of the weekly lectionary passages. Join myself and a guest each week as we explore the lectionary text together. This is the place for gospel-rich, grace-saturated, and a properly worldly lens on the week's lectionary passages, all in 25 minutes or less. My guest is the Reverend Dr. Kenyatta Gilbert. He's a professor of homiletics at the Howard University Divinity School. He's also an ordained Baptist minister and founder of The Preaching Project, a website ministry promoting the nurture of the preaching life of ministers serving African-American churches and communities. Prior to joining the Divinity School's faculty in 2006, he served congregations in Texas, New York, New Jersey, and Kenya. Currently, he serves a congregation in Silver Spring, Maryland, as an associate minister and practical theologian in residence. He's also an old and dear friend. I give you Kenyatta Gilbert. Kenyatta, welcome to the podcast. Thank you, Scott. It's great to be with you again. Yeah, I've had you on my interview podcast. This is the first time you're on the Selectionary Podcast, and it's great because you are not just a preacher, you are a teacher of preachers. So I feel like we're in very good hands here with uh, for my listeners. And not that we're always in good hands, but it's uh, it's fun. You teach at Howard Divinity School. That's right. Where Kanye just was. for his. Oh my service. goodness. Oh my goodness. Exploiting privilege. Exactly. But anyway. There you go. Hey, hey, man, this is that's the world. It, I don't hate the player, hate the game. You know? <laughs> <laughs> so here we have our first lectionary passage for this week sure. is Joel 2, 23 through 32. And here we have this passage where the children of Israel are to be glad because he's given early rain for their vindication. Um, and there, you know, there's this seeming, you know, it's interesting because there's this plague that seems to be a locust plague. Some people think maybe it symbolizes some other sort of invasion or foreign kind of issue, but whether it's literally a, a, a plague and, and it's the idea is that the rain, you know, the fall rate, summer rain and the fall rain need to come for the harvest or those things symbolize something. It's, it's, I guess, either way we have God, God's people in the midst of trouble and there's this promise that, uh, there's... Light at the end of the tunnel, right? And that it's not just a train coming in the other direction. That's right. That's right. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it, what, what I find interesting about this text is, is that it clearly speaks to ecological uh, matters and catastrophe. And uh, I just think that though we don't know much about who the prophet Joel uh, was and we don't have any dates, we can't tie him to any particular uh, monarchial reign, uh, we have a lot of fruit here that, in my judgment, ties into lament and also ties into kind of the the typical uh, storyline of Israel's dealing dealings with God. And of course, you know the storyline of of some failure, some sin in the camp, some infraction in the community, and then God uh, uh, is love spurned, and then this benevolent God continues uh, to remain faithful to those who are unfaithful. And so I think uh, Joel's uh, story uh, storyline kind of follows in sync with what we've uh, seen throughout uh, the prophetic uh, literature. My teacher from Pittsburgh, Don Gallen, wrote this book on the theology of the prophetic books. And he says that the way to read the prophets is not like Deuteronomy. Like you can, you know, you can obey the Torah and choose life or you can sin and choose death. Choose life. He's like, the real 
underlying message is Israel has sinned, therefore Israel will die, and Israel must place its hope in the God who raises the dead. Right. And mm. that it's interesting when you read the prophets that way, because it's sort of with the idea that on the on the other side of these seeming deaths are resurrections, right? And so that that somehow even the judgment will be used right. for some kind of promise. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. But you know, also in this text, it's it's interesting because God is depicted in so many different ways. You know, at the beginning, God is depicted as this ruthless warrior, and then toward the end, God is ruthless, um, and then God is also this you know punitive judge. But ultimately, we 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 get this sense in the text that we're dealing with today uh, of a benevolent God who uh, makes promises even in the midst of all the, 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 the plagues and the uh, drought and all of these things that are uh, sending this community into crisis. And uh, of course, uh, God has uh, spoken in this, in this passage about God's spirit being um, indiscriminate in the sense that all, of, all daughters and sons and uh, the enslaved and the free uh, God's spirit will visit it. Will visit them. Yeah, and it's interesting because you think about like if if part of like living east of Eden is living without the spirit of God everywhere. You even think of Ezekiel when the spirit leaves the temple. It's almost like God's. I'm going to take my glory presence from the temple before either of us says something we regret here. Right. But like that, like depravity is from deprivation, right? The world, the, the world, reason the world has fallen because it's not flooded with God's spirit. And so the sense is that this is the opposite of, of life east of Eden, that there'll be, God's spirit will be everywhere and flooding all people. That's right. That's right. And uh, I think the prophet Joel makes this very clear, uh, moving into this space of lament, but ultimately God responds uh, in a way that's gracious. Yeah, and there's this picture of like the day of the Lord here. Like it, it's mm. interesting because like all the times of the day of the Lord, you know, after God's judgment, there's these things that happen. One is there's always food, right? People eat. You know, we're happy we eat. You know, we we right. there's no party we don't have food, right? And so right. people, there's a vision of people eating. There's this sense in which God's presence is everywhere, as opposed to absence. And there's glory as as opposed to shame. You know, yeah. people aren't people the the people of God aren't hanging their heads and and being ridiculed they're they're glorified by being in God's presence and you see that that's sort of the hope here at the end that somehow these things will all come true for the people of God on the other side of what I guess God is promising through the prophet yeah 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 the the the, the insight that was an aha moment for me uh, was at the beginning of this book where you know the the crisis is so severe that when the agriculture fails, that is also indicative of a community not being able to offer any sacrifice. So if you have if you have animals uh, that were offered to God in, in, in worship, and even those are not uh, accessible, um, that suggests something uh, very different uh, from uh, just you know, facing a crisis. We're facing a crisis and we have nothing to, to use as an instrument to atone for, for um, our own sins. Yeah. It's just like, it just as it's interesting because like, you know, the Bible, the, the fall is just not spiritual. It affects everything. It affects yeah. the physical, it affects the social, it affects, you know, and, and there's a picture of that here, right? That, that, sure. that, that, that the struggle, this calamity is affects everything. And, and, and Israel needs God needs a whole deliverance, not, not just something spiritual. That's right, that's 
on to the epistle, the epistle reading here. Second Timothy four, six through 18, and then 16 through 18, where Paul here is talking, he's encouraging, uh, Timothy, but he's, you know, but he's talking about his own story and his own keeping the faith, fighting the good fight. He's probably in prison in Rome here. And, you know, it's kind of dark. And yet in the midst of the darkness, everybody's deserted him except, uh, you know, but in the midst of this, he has this picture of God's faithfulness and God's glory. This is a beauty. There's a beauty to his, it's, he's kind of, it's the agony and the, and, and the ecstasy here all together. That's right. Yeah. I think, I think it's interesting. It's, it's almost, you know, Paul is, his death is impending. Nero is about to execute him and he's still giving advice to Timothy saying, you know, Timothy, listen, you know, carry out your ministry with full integrity because you do not in the, in the end want to be disqualified for, uh, for I have finished this race. I have kept the faith. I have run. Uh, I've fought a good fight. This is this is kind of the the um, the last piece of at uh, of, of advice to uh, this young ordinan is to you know stay in the race. Uh, don't give up because that's 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 what I have been running this race to uh, uh, to impart to you. And I just think that Paul is ultimately kind of giving his swan song in these last couple verses and uh, helping Timothy to take on this charge uh, uh, as an evangelist who is who is clearly still wet behind his ears, but uh, has a veteran apostle who's kind of shepherding him so that he's able to to continue to function without his mentor. You know, I'm so uh I, I'm so sad that verse twenty one is not included in lecture reading because verse twenty one uh, do do thy diligence to come shortly unto me. Do thy diligence to come before winter. Actually, I think verse nine is do thy diligence to come unto me. And then verse 21 is do thy diligence to come before winter. And Clarence McCartney, the famous Presbyterian preacher, preached a sermon called Come Before Winter in like the 20s or something in Pittsburgh. And it was so dramatic. He starts talking about Napoleon Bonaparte and Apostle Paul is the most renowned prisoners of history. He says, one was in prison because the peace of the world demanded it. The other, because he sought to give to men that peace, which the world cannot give and which the world cannot take away. And he just kind of does this great, like dramatic picture of Napoleon versus Paul and how different they are and both yet both in prison. And he hits on this verse come before winter and, Mm. and, and, you know, and his pending execution. And then he turns into this sort of, evangelistic kind of tolling of the bell like it's october you know winter's coming what have you left undone with your family with your friends with the lord come before winter and he tolls the bell and tolls it after the after the um sermon was preached the elders called him into the into in the church boardroom and they passed a resolution they they wanted it mandated that he preached that same sermon every third sunday in october for his tenure there and he did he preached the same sermon on the same text in late october because it was this whole thing about the significance of coming before, you know, winter or pulse. It's one of those things. It's a little bit of icy. I mean, he's kind of hanging on this thing about this throwaway phrase, but yeah. you know, he does want to see Timothy. And there's the sense in which there's urgent, like he knows that life is fleeting. Right. And, and right. when life is fleeting, which is for all of us, right? Like, Sure. Uh, you know, when, when you have that perspective, how fragile things are, you tend to like major on the majors, I guess. <laughs> Yeah, and I I, I I love that kind of poetry and uh, use of rhetorical devices that 
help us to get a better picture of of um, of the insight of insights into the text. Yeah, it's it's there's an artistry to that, which I think like yeah, it's probably something we don't encourage in seminary and stuff like because you got to teach the fundamentals right like it, it, so if somebody kind of t- does that like well all right look focus on the major but there's something but then you hear it like the seasoned pulpiteer do it and you're like wow that's pretty beautiful <laughs> <laughs> that's right that's right yeah yeah and clearly you know sort of getting back to this notion of I need you. There's this. There's this intergenerational cooperation between apostle and and novice, and he clearly says in in that passage where you, that you just in that verse that you just read, you know, I need you to bring me something because I'm in this particular situation where I feel deserted. I'm not only deserted by my companions, but I'm 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 in need. Clearly in need, and. Uh, and Timothy is a recipient of this of this letter, and uh, he can prove not only his salt, but he can prove his support of his mentor by uh, by honoring him and bringing his cloak to him uh, that he had left behind. We kind of read into that and say that Paul, you know, perhaps suffered from uh, some forms of uh, of dementia. Yeah, you know, that he's leaving his coat behind. We, we, I mean, we we can speculate and kind of read into the text that what's not there, but to kind of see this picture of the aged and the the the, the younger person kind of uh, stepping into kind of his own uh, sense of gravitas. Uh, I think is a beautiful picture. Yeah, and the church is always right, like any movement, one generation from away from extinction. I mean, right? It, it's in, there's this great story where uh, G. Campbell Morgan, the old British preacher, tells the story of visiting Italy, and he he is visiting this graveyard, and he sees this big oak tree piercing up through mm. a massive headstone, a massive like you know marble headstone, and he said it was clear to it happened like as they were digging the grave, an acorn fell, some you know the seedling fell in, and on that day you would have bet, well, of course. This, the 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 marble slab is gonna is gonna is gonna crush the seedling, See, right. but no, the seedling won and cr- and crushed through the <laughs> thing. And you look at like Paul writing here, and you look at Nero and the Empire, and you think, oh, the Empire is gonna win. You got to bet on the Empire. You're gonna beat on imprisoned Paul and right. his mentee somewhere. And yet, you know, the, the organic uh, seed of the kingdom, it, it, you know, is is with God's promise is, is, is despite all odds and despite our eyes, you know, uh, you know, we walk by faith, not by say it's the one to bet on. That's right. That's right. And, uh, and Paul, Paul actually gives us this picture of, of, of one who has at the very least studied athletic contests, you know, you get, you know, this, this sense that he's been to the Greek games uh, and he understands just the nature of the physicality of, of trying to sustain one's life uh, in the face of suffering, in the face of persecution, all of these things. And he's saying here that I have fought my way through this thing, you know, not just spiritually, but also physically. Folks were being thrown to the lions, you know, for professing Christ. And so um, I think I think there's a lot of fruit uh, to to extract from from this passage. to the gospel 
reading here, which is I, I, this is I think Luke eighteen here verses nine through fourteen. If you if you ask me, like explain the gospel in in one kind of pericope, I might choose this one because here, I mean, this great story. Jesus tells this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and regarded others with contempt. And how much, I mean, this is the culture of contempt, right? I mean, this is call-out culture. This is social media. This is, you know, everybody is always contemptuous of everybody else, right? And it's always right. it's always on what cable network you watch, whether you eat the right food, whether you're this, you're that. Right. You know, and, and, and we all have these ways in which we hold each other contemptuous. He tells a story about two people that go up to pray, a Pharisee and, and the other uh, a tax collector, uh, or the old translations, the publican. And the Pharisee's like, hey, God, thank you. I'm not like these people, thieves, rogues, adulterers, even like this publican. So, you know, I'm fasting and give my income. Uh, and the tax collector is standing far off. It won't even look up to heaven and beating his breast saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. And it's, you know, Jesus seems to say the one that's justified is this tax collector. And the one that's not is the Pharisee, you know? And I, I think like, this is like the, one of the hardest parables to really ingest because I feel like it, as ministers, we want the fact, we want this one who's saying, thank God, there before the grace of God go I. That's the one we want in our church. That's the one we want to be a deacon or an elder or whatever. And the publican is one we're like, okay, I mean, you can come in as long as you clean up your act kind of thing. Uh, this is a hard text, I think. Yeah, but it's a beautiful one, too. It it, um, it really illustrates the human condition in ways that um, cause us to look inwardly. I mean, this whole notion, Paul uh, Howard Thurman uh, has this saying that judgment belong, really belongs to God, um, and every judgment upon another uh, is also a self-judgment. So there's no way in which you can point the figure at uh, another um, and not see uh, the finger pointing back at you, another finger point, pointing back at you. And uh, I just think it's, it's, uh, it's much harder for a person who has been brought up to think that, the, that what they've done uh, merits uh, high regard or esteem. Uh, and then one from that develops a sense of, of arrogance um, and even insecurity in the sense that uh, any any challenge to their own self righteousness uh, breeds breeds contempt well breeds contempt for others for one but also breeds this this insecurity of 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 perhaps making a mistake I cannot be sinful because I have done this this and this uh, whereas you you have explicit before us in this text the tax collector who's who's clearly uh, you know, it's done. Um, who has worked for Rome at the uh, has worked against his own uh, people? Yeah, these the are th these are Rome. mafioso extortionists. Absolutely, absolutely. And uh, but this person is justified because of this act of contrition. And I just think that that's a, it's a beautiful way to see this, and that we who um, have some level of influence and authority within the church. We have to be very careful that we don't deceive ourselves. Yeah, my favorite commentator. I quote. I quote him almost every time one of these texts is a, is a parable uh, in this on this podcast. Robert Farrakhan, who wrote this great book 
called Kingdom Grace and Judgment, which is all about the parables. He says, what Jesus is saying in this parable is that no human goodness is good enough to pass a test like that, and that therefore God is not about to risk it. He will not take our cluttered life as we hold it into eternity. He will take only the clean emptiness of our death in the power of Jesus' resurrection. He condemns the Pharisee because he, t- he takes his stand on a life God cannot use. He commends the publican because he rests his case on a death that God can use. The fact, of course, is that they are both equally dead, and therefore both alike receivers of the gift of resurrection. But the trouble with the Pharisee is that for as long as he refuses to confess the first fact, he will simply be unable to believe the second. He will be justified in his death, but he will be so busy doing the bookkeeping on a life that he cannot hold that he will never be able to enjoy himself. It's just misery to keep count of what God is no longer counting. Your entries keep disappearing. That's beautiful. Yeah, I think about that, that like, that you... You know, we can judge this Pharisee, but I think he sounds like a lot. Again, when we are like judging other people, we often do say things like, there before the grace of God go I. I mean, you know, and we sort of, we we humble brag, right? Which, which is the, which is the kind of symptom that we, we all are addicted to self justification projects, right? Where we, where we somehow make ourselves justified. We, you know, there's this, there's this great scene in, um, in Chariots of Fire in the beginning that one guy who is, a Christian and his sister doesn't understand why he's why he won't just do his mission work to China. And he says, you know, I I do believe God's made me for a purpose for China, but but uh, when when I run, but he also made me fast. And when I run, <laughs> I can feel his pleasure. That's like if you're a Presbyterian and you could do that, you know, bro. They get extra in the pulpit, extra like offering. But he says, you know, when I run, I feel his pleasure. And then later, Howard Abrams, who's kind of a secular guy, says that the reason he runs. Is when that gun goes off, he knows he's got 10 seconds to justify his existence. Wow. And that, like, it's somehow, even even in maybe especially religion becomes the ultimate self-justification project, right? Like, gosh, the gun went off. If I can do enough religious ritual, then I don't have to pray the prayer of the publican. Uh, but, you know, it's, it's just interesting how deeply ingrained, I think, this parable is offensive yeah. to yeah. the human psyche. And it makes you, I mean, especially being kind of... American citizens, this this uh, this context of rugged individualism. I mean, look at look at verses eleven through twelve. You know, you get all of these first person pronouns. Pharisee stands up and says, "God, I thank you that I am not like the other people. I'm not a thief. I'm not a rogue. I'm not an adulterer. I fast twice a week. I give a tenth of my. I mean, what 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 else could he you know possibly do?" To uh, to make one want to run away from him, like I, you know, I try to I try to keep distance from people who are always uh, suggesting um, or projecting self righteousness. No one really wants to be around those folks, you know. Whereas um, persons who are who have come to an honest place that they uh, that they need God, uh, those are the people that uh, I think we who do ministry are drawn to. Yeah. There's the, the lack of, I mean, I feel like that's, I love that line with Capon says that, that he's the, the Pharisee has this life that God can't really use. Cause you know, there's but, but the publican brings a death that he can't. Cause you know, what does Jesus say? Yeah. Come to me and die. You know, like that's the only prerequisite for being a Christian dying uh, so that you can be raised. And, and that's the, and there's, it's, it, it's humbling and yet liberating at the same time. That's right. Kenyatta, thanks for doing this with me, my friend and blessings to you and your preaching and your teaching ministry and blessings to our listeners. Thank you. I've enjoyed it. 
Thanks for listening to the Synaxis Podcast. If you like what you heard, please go to iTunes, give it a rating, write a review, and subscribe. Or pass it along to a friend via email or say something about it on social media. All of those things help so much as we're just getting off the ground. Thanks to Kenyatta for coming on the podcast. And thanks again to you for listening. Till next time, friends, fare thee well.